I'm a 90s kid, and growing up in the 90s, just I think movies, honestly, were just so awesome. Maybe it's just my nostalgia. But one of my favorite ones growing up is one called A Goofy Movie. Probably heard of it, probably seen it, possibly. You had kids or grew up in that era, and just a quick synopsis of the movie is that uh, Goofy has a son, Max, and uh, after getting into some trouble at school, Goofy decides to take his son uh, to, on a fishing trip, hoping that will put him on the right path, but Max has got a girl that he's liking, and so this whole string of lies begins with Max uh, ultimately culminating with, to the reality he needs to get to this concert so this girl doesn't think that he's a liar. Now, uh, they're going to be bringing out something here in a second, just pretend that they're not there. It's just like Oz, man behind the, behind the curtain. But so in the movie, uh, there, there, there comes, you know, all sorts of things happening, and there comes this moment when, when his dad, Goofy, is asleep, Max takes the map and changes the directions. He races where they're supposed to be going on the fishing trip and puts them going to California, to the big city, so that he can get to this concert. And Goofy finds out about it and actually gets us to this scene where Max is holding the map and he has to make a decision. Is he going to be a truthful son or is he going to keep up with the lie? You guys watch this. Here you go, Navigator. Just follow my route on the map, son. Okay. Um. Here comes our junction. Okay, Max, now this is it. Left or right? I show you that because I often feel that in my walk with the Lord, that God is there walking beside me, gently encouraging me to walk in the way that I know and he knows is the right way. And then at the last minute when it really counts, I choose the wrong way. We choose the wrong way. And today I want to talk about this idea of choosing, but uh, before we get there, I just want to catch you up briefly. We have been in this series called Surrender 2024. We started it January 1st, the day of 21 days of, of fasting and prayer, which means that we are ending that today. So thank you so much if you kept up with that in just whatever form. I know we changed it up just as we went throughout, even within our family and me personally. But I really believe the Lord honors that. But week one, we came to this conclusion that surrender is faith in action. That's what it means. It is it is to choose to have faith in God's way over our own. And so it might mean to start something or stop something, to pick something up or to put it down, to, to change a way of thinking or think about something else, all sorts of different ways to surrender. And then last week, if you were here, we talked about our finances, which is super thrilling for everybody in the room. And we said that God can't have our hearts if we don't surrender our resources to him. Well... Today, I want to take a, a pretty different path as we conclude this idea of surrenders, because each week so far, the first two weeks, were about things that you and I can control. They're about habits or actions or 
thoughts, and all of those things like that, that that's typically what we mean by, by surrender. It means starting or stopping something. Well, today, though, I want to talk about a different kind of surrender that is still just involved, but actually, I think, is probably more difficult. And it is when moments in life happen that are outside of your control. Like, what, what do you do when things in life go wrong when you have done nothing wrong? Moments like this. Let me, let me maybe better explain. Times when, let's say, sickness comes out of nowhere. And you have tried to take care of yourself, and you didn't microwave plastic, and you drank out of a metal water bottle, and you did all of the things, and you don't go to McDonald's for every meal, and you do all the things, but yet, sickness and disease still come into your life. Or maybe it's not about something like that, where, where it seems like just the world is against you, or maybe God's forgotten you. What about when those who are supposed to be there for you hurt you? Or what about when you were betrayed, or when you're lied to, or you're stolen from, or you're cheated on, or you're passed over, or forgotten about? Maybe times when you were used, or stepped on, or treated far worse than anybody deserves. I'm, talk, I'm not talking about gray area things where it's like, well, okay, some of it might be my fault, two, rights don't, you know, two wrongs don't make a right kind of situation. No, I'm talking about when you are truly the word we would call it when you are truly a victim. And whether that's being a victim to just the chaos and brokenness of this life, maybe even feel a little bit victimized by God, and most certainly when those around you who should have had your best in mind treated you with the worst. How do you, how do you move on from something like that? Because the truth is, like, culture is going to have an answer. I mean, the world that Jesus stepped into had an answer. Matter of fact, the answer then, Jesus would even refer to it, he would say things like, well, you have heard an eye for a, an eye. We've all heard that. Now, of course, 2,000 years later, we're trying to work out what Jesus would say because Jesus would conclude that with, well, if somebody strikes you on one cheek, what are you supposed to do as a Christian? Right here, give me this one. This one's not red yet, right? But, of course, while we know that to be Jesus, the, the truth that Jesus said... Is that the truth that we want to live in, though? No. When somebody hurts me, I want to lash back out at least equal to what they gave to me. And so we have to decide what kind of people are we. And that's why I showed you that quick clip, because I think today is going to signal a breaking of a, of a path. Because I want to talk about, for creative sake, I want to talk about, or I want to talk about first, I want to talk about this idea of surrendering your pain and trauma. How do we are we even supposed to? How can we even surrender the times when we were the victim? Nobody's questioning that. What are we supposed to do in those moments? Well, I want to talk about, for metaphoric and creative purposes, two destinations. Two destinations. And the first destination I want to introduce to you is a place that I'm calling Victim Village. Victim Village. Now, Victim Village has a brochure, and if you were to go visit Victim Village, uh, this is some of the things that you would learn about it. See, Victim Village has the worst kinds of neighbors, because in Victim Village, everything is always somebody else's fault. See, everyone in Victim Village has been wronged, and no wrong in Victim Village has ever been forgotten. 
Interesting to note, it's always raining in Victim Village. See, Victim Village, interestingly enough, while it's not big on scale, it is way overpopulated, way too many people. And what's, what's frustrating about Victim Village, it is extremely easy to get to, but it is very difficult to leave. See, the slogan of Victim Village is this. It's, it's on their sign every time somebody steps into the town for the first time. It is, I will never, I will never trust again, try again, believe again, or hope like that again. There's no ruler in Victim Village because no one in Victim Village trusts anyone and everyone has chosen just to rule themselves. Easy to get into, difficult to leave. Now, there's another place I want to say, and this is where our fork in the road, if you will, happens. Because there's another place, and you don't have to visit Victim Village if you don't want to. There's another place that I'm calling Victorious Life City. Victorious Life City. Now, in Victorious Life City, the weather is great. Matter of fact, the sun is always shining. It's full of the best neighbors who truly care about one another. See, in Victorious Life City, everyone there has also been hurt, but no one carries it with them. See, it's a place full of peace, understanding, forgiveness, purpose, and quite possibly the most important, a place full of promise. Now, what's interesting is the population is much smaller, but there's this thing that the residents have determined. They call it abundant life. Is there. That's why they named the city after it. So my goal today is to help you decide where you're heading and where you ultimately want to end up. Because the truth is, all of us in some way are on a journey. And I want to frame this within a Bible story that most of us have probably heard, but maybe not within this, quite this context. It's a story that comes out of the Old Testament about a man named Joseph. Now, if you know of Joseph, you might have heard of Joseph in his multicolored coat. Maybe there's even a play of Joseph in the multi, the technicolor dream coat. I don't know. I don't keep up with stuff like that. But there's something out there. You've heard of it before, I'm sure. But I need to talk about Joseph by actually going back a few generations. See, Joseph is a direct descendant of a guy named Abraham. We've talked about him just recently on the first week. And, and God called Abraham out. Abraham was a nobody. And he came and he, and he sang a little song to Abraham said, Abraham had many sons. Yes, I know some of you have went to Sunday school before. And it shows. And it shows. And I'm sorry we don't offer that here. We will just teach you the songs right here in person. So Abraham had many sons. The fascinating thing is, though, Abraham actually had only like one son of the promise. This name was Isaac. So it was Abraham. Then Isaac, oddly enough, only had, uh, well, he had two sons. And it didn't fare super well. He had, he had two sons, Esau and, and Jacob. And and then what we learn is, is that Jacob really becomes a real character in the story of Joseph. Jacob is Joseph's father, but Jacob has his own whole host of issues, starting with he, uh, he lied to his blind father about being his older brother by putting on goat skins on his arms and just straight up lying to his dad. When his brother found out about it because he stole his blessing, which was a big deal back then, he has to run for his life. We talked about him recently, too. And he has run for his life, and he eventually gets to a place where his distant relative is there named Laban. Now, Laban has two daughters, one named Rachel and one named Leah. And as soon as he shows up, it is love at first sight for the daughter named Rachel. The Bible says that she was beautiful, very easy 
on the eyes or so, as it says. And so he was so in love with her, which is wild to think about, that he goes to his father-in-law and says, hey, I would like to marry your daughter, Rachel. And Laban's like, great, work for me for seven years and you can. And I just want to think, what if your father, like your future father-in-law said that to you, men? It's like, absolutely, you can have her hand in marriage. Quit your job, you're working on the farm. You're like, well. She's not that pretty. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some of you, some of you are like right now, she's like, I would, honey. I would. I would work. I would work very hard for seven years. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. Anyway, but that's fine. I don't want to cause any, 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 any issues within families. But uh, what's really interesting about the story, I'm sure you've heard of it, but it's just good to know in the context of this is that after the seven years were up, he goes, culture was a little different, and I don't know how wedding parties happen, but at the last moment, Laban, the dad, switched the daughters, and they would go into the tent and consummate the marriage physically. And so Jacob does that. He goes, but when he wakes up the next morning, whom he is now married to is the other sister, Leah. I'm just, I'm just picturing that in my mind and thinking, boy, what an awkward moment. Like, what does she even say? Surprise, you know? <laughs> Hi, it's me. Well, obviously Jacob's not happy. He goes back to the father-in-law, and father's all like, oh, <laughs> whoopsie. Hey, you can, you can marry Rachel too, but you must work for another seven years. And all the husbands are like, babe, I love you, but I don't know if 14 years is worth it. Man, that's a lot. But he does it. He works for another 14 years, and he marries her. Now, that's not the ending of the story. Obviously, already, we have a good bit of trauma. Like, I mean, honestly, I'm kind of team Leah here because, like, she's just a victim of her own circumstances, but the Lord does bless her by starting to have many, many children. And in this time and day that a woman's worth was a lot, or was significantly tied to the amount of kids that she had. And so Leah begins to have children, but Rachel does not begin to have children, so then becomes this weird, like, who can build a family better playoff edition with Jacob just being whatever he's doing, and so, you know, after some time, Leah's making fun of Rachel because Rachel's the favorite, but she didn't have any kids, and so she makes, Leah makes Rachel jealous, and Rachel's like, fine, I'm going to give Jacob, my husband, my maidservant, and, and he can have babies with her, and Jacob's like, awesome, right? And so that's what he does, and that starts happening, and Leah's like, oh yeah, I can play that game too, and then, and then she does that too, and then, so now Jacob is having a bunch of kids with like three different women. None of them are his favorite wife, Rachel, though, right? And you think your family get-togethers are weird. <laughs> nope. Not at all. You actually have an extremely sane family, if you, if you want to know. And some of y'all are like, this is in the Bible. Bro, the Bible's wild. I'm just saying, like, y'all need to read that thing if you don't. And it also points out that God does not use perfect people at all. There aren't any, except for Jesus. There aren't any. That's the whole point of the Bible, if you didn't know. Well, over time, Rachel does eventually have two kids. And of course, the favorite wife would certainly have the favorite sons. And so now there are a total of 10 non-favorite children and two favorite. Oh, but don't worry. The story gets worse. Just in Disney World fashion, Rachel dies. Because the parents always die in Disney movies, if you didn't know that reference. It happens on all of them. Well, so now Jacob has two sons that are the lasting memory of his long-lost favorite wife. Well, that's where our story picks up with Joseph. Joseph is the older of those two sons. It was Joseph and Benjamin. The story begins that Joseph's a little younger. He has 10 older brothers who are pretty varied in age. They're probably up into their 
maybe even 30s or 40s at this time, some of his older brothers. They're off caring for the family farm, and Jacob sends his son Joseph, hey, go check on your brothers, because what better for the chosen son to do is to go check up on and tattletale to dad. What a horrible father, honestly. Well, to show you the hate and the spite that had welled up in the heart of the other 10 brothers, it's just a little window, Genesis 37, 18. They saw him being, they saw Joseph in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. Again, I know your Thanksgiving might have been awkward, but ain't nobody killed anybody yet, maybe. Maybe I should put that on there, I don't know. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes the dream expert, because he had had a dream that everybody would bow down to him one day, exactly what everybody wants to hear from a younger sibling. And said, so, come on now, let's kill him and throw him in one of these pits, and we can say that a vicious animal ate him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Not nice, as my mom would say. That is not nice. Not a nice way to talk about your siblings. Well, of course, if you know the story, what happens is that they choose not to kill him. They instead decide to profit off of him, and they sell him to be a slave to traders going to Egypt. So poor old Joseph, who again, I'm still going to say is a victim of the circumstances. Like, at this point, I'm still blaming Jacob and his broken fatherhood, right? Like, we can, it's okay to lay a lot of the blame there. So Joseph now has been unfairly sold. It's not his fault. He goes on into Egypt. He's sold to a guy named Potiphar. He does a phenomenal job, becomes kind of the, the leading man in Potiphar's house, taking care of all of his stuff. Potiphar's wife's like, ooh, he looks nice. Throws herself at him. Joseph says no because for some odd reason he's a man of honor. Well, she lies because she got turned down and Potiphar comes home. He throws Joseph into jail. So not only has he been traded by his own family, now even his employer has fought the lie and he's in prison. But don't worry, things are looking up. He meets two guys in prison that work for Pharaoh, who interprets both of their dreams. Both of the dreams come true. And he tells one of them, said, please, when you go back to Pharaoh's court, don't forget about me. And just like a really good friend, he forgot about him. And so he spends more time in prison. Eventually, though, Joseph does get his day. See, the man that did forget, who wasn't supposed to forget, eventually remembered when it best suited him. And so he told Pharaoh about Joseph because Pharaoh was having some weird dreams and Pharaoh called Joseph up, and Joseph interpreted the dreams. And like that, Joseph went from zero to hero. And Pharaoh put him in to charge of his whole kingdom just under himself because there was a famine in the land that was coming. and Joseph had just the skills to take care of the country. Well, one of the things I did think about is what would you do if you had gone through all of that trauma, lied on, forgotten about, thrown in a pit, sold at a discount, I'm sure, by your own family, and all of a sudden you found yourself with near unlimited power and authority? I wonder how tempting an eye for an eye would feel to us. Well, I want to jump back into Victim Village and Victorious Life City. See, I think Joseph had a VIP ticket to Victim Valley. I mean, he could have been mayor if anybody would have let him. 
Because honestly, this whole thing, and, and the Bible paints it that, Joseph is a victim to the broken world and people all around him. So what, is, what does he do, and what can we learn? Well, I want to talk about the road to Victim Village. I think that's important for us to talk about. See, the road to Victim Village, it, you don't get there overnight. You don't just show up one day. That's not quite how it works. It's a journey, and we're all on this journey, and, and it starts with this. I'm pairing two words together because I think it better helps make sense of what I'm trying to communicate, but the first way that it starts, the journey begins through this, hurt and disappointment. Now, the thing is, hurt and disappointment are not wrong. They are something that we all will experience. You will be as a promise, I can't promise much, but I can promise you this, you will be hurt and disappointed by something or by someone, listen, including possibly even being hurt and disappointed by God or his decision of something that he allowed to happen or not happen in your life. And so that's, that's not where the danger lies because we're all going to experience this idea of, of hurt and, and disappointment. It's, it's this experience that we will all go through and we'll go through again if you already have. But, but the thing is, what matters is actually what happens next because the next step, the entrance into Victim Valley is this. It's fear and anger. Fear and and anger. And the reason I pair those two things together, maybe that's not exactly what comes into your mind, but it's because fear and anger are both a response. See, let's talk about maybe fear for a second. It, fear is when you find out you are no longer as secure in something as you once thought you were. Maybe it's a relationship, a friendship, a marriage with your parents, and, and that thing that you never had to worry about before all of a sudden is now all you worry about. Or maybe it's a health thing. I, I, I thought I was good. I was, I was feeling better than I ever had been. Or, or, or I, I just thought it was something minor. And now fear is a response. But now sometimes it's not always fear. I, I think kind of like a similar but maybe opposite side of the coin is anger. Because anger is also a response in realizing that you can't control other people. Anger is realizing that life is full of chaos, life is full of pain, and regardless of how good you've been, you're still a victim to it. Doesn't matter how much money you have, how much clout you have, how many friends you have, you're still hurt and disappointed. You couldn't protect yourself. Matter of fact, fear and anger, they sound a lot like this. It says, I don't know if I can trust you. It's responding to that hurt and, and still trying to work it out. It's, it's I thought you cared about me is what fear and anger sounds like. I thought you cared about me. Where were you when I needed you? Why is this happening to me? Why doesn't God change this? There's a lot of why in this stage. And I feel like I'm alone in this. And at the stage you're still responding, have a lot of questions, but this uncertainty has now been interjected into your life. But that's just what gets us there. Depending on how we Settle and handle fear and anger. Because now listen, the point today is not to never have fear and anger. It's impossible. That's why the, the whole of the Bible constantly says to the people of God, fear not. Why? Because that is a natural response to hurt and disappointment. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not be consumed by anger. Why? Because that's a natural response to being hurt and disappointed. But what happens next is devastating. 
Because the end of the line and how you know that you are now in Victim Valley is it ends with bitterness and hate. Bitterness and hate. A bitter soul is a poisoned soul. Now bitterness and hate is hard to come back from this place. It's not impossible. I want you to hear that. It's not impossible. But this is what bitterness and hate sounds like. And maybe this is what you need to hear today. Bitterness and hate sound like this. It says, I will never. I will never trust again. I will never give again. I will never hope like that again. I will never try like that again. And I will never love like that again. And the way that I often see it in my own life and working as a pastor is when I see people who are having trouble in a current maybe relationship, friendship, marriage, and really at the root of it is a previous pain in which they made a decision and they said, I will never be hurt by a woman like that again. I will never be hurt by a man like that again. I will never trust a friend like that again. I will never trust my family again. I, I don't think I can ever trust God like I did again. See, even Peter says it this way in Acts 8.23 just makes a quick statement in a conversation. He says, see, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness, bound by wickedness. See, bitterness and hate are after you have, done, you, you have already decided. It is a new way of living and of life. And that's why it's so devastating. And that's why the Bible speaks so strongly about, about, about uh, 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 bitterness and hate. And the reason I'm pairing hate with that and not just bitterness is because we don't always express it, but when we say things like hate, hate is a bitterness of the heart. Hate is a hard-heartedness of the heart. So I want to show you an illustration. You've probably been looking at this door the whole time thinking, what in the world is he doing with the door here? Well, this door, randomly enough, is actually the entrance to Abundant Life City, Victorious Life City. Victorious Life City here, and the way you have to get there is actually it's just through this door. So I want to open this door for us. I need, I need my, my volunteer to come out here. Uh, Brian, are you backstage? I hope so. Brian, y'all give a round of applause for Brian. <laughs> we'll soon be featured in playing at the end of the service. Well, uh, Brian, Brian here is a volunteer. He's just, he's just normal like the rest of us. While he is dashingly good looking, he's still just normal, normal guy like us. And see, while it looks like it would be really easy for Brian to pass through the door. This isn't really an accurate illustration yet. So, Brian, I need you to, to put this on for me. Now, this inner tube here, as you just stand there for a second, this inner, this inner tube represents the disappointment and hurt that we will all go through. So, so let me stress that we're all kind of in different varying degrees of this at some point or maybe currently in your life. We're all carrying around something because we all got a little bit of disappointment. We all got some hurt in our life. Now, as an illustration inside of an illustration, which I think is super meta, this actually also represents the distance, watch this, the distance that hurt and disappointment can bring 
if you allow it. That's actually where the start of the journey to victim, victim, um, victim village. Whew. Wow, you really blanked out there a second. All right. If I had an inner tube on as well, it would even create more distance. But now, Brian, I need you to try to get your hurt and disappointment into the door so you can go to Victorious City. All right, go. Can you get through? He's not? Wait. <laughs> Brian, Brian, I need you to come back outside the city. <laughs> Brian, turn around. You are messing up. You're messing up the illustration. I need you to walk. Look, yep, yeah, right, 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 yeah, now, now, so now try, try anything you can to get through the door now, Brian. Anything you can to get through the door. It, Brian. All right, Brian, come back through. All right, put that down. Put that down. I have an idea. I, I, I didn't think this through well. Hey, Greg, can you bring out the others? Because, see, what, what, I, did, what I forgot to tell Brian is in order to get to Victoria's Life City, uh, we're not just carrying around our hurts and disappointments, right? It's actually, I said there were, there were three things, right? So, Brian, I need you to go ahead and step into this because it's a compounding effect. Because the, the point is, all of us have hurt and disappointment is how you handle that. So Brian, go ahead and pick this up. Because, see, what happens is, is when you start with hurt and, and disappointment, then eventually you're going to add on to that if you're not careful, this anger and this fear. And then before long, you will just be overcome with hate and, and bitterness because it flows into that pattern. Now, now what Brian is carrying is so much that I can't get anywhere close to Brian. He has shut everything off, including anything spiritually and emotionally. Brian, God's calling you to the victorious life city of his. Go through that door, Brian. Brian, come on through the door because through this door are all the promises God has for your future. Brian, this is where you want to be, Brian, but you cannot get here while carrying what you have. Try as you may, Brian. <laughs> Try as you may, Brian. But Brian, without breaking down my door, I don't think you can get through. You can put that down. Thank you, Brian. Everybody give Brian a round of applause. I appreciate you, sir. Now, I share that silly illustration with you because I really am trying so hard to lock this into your memory. Because my fear is, because I'm a realist, and I do ministry, and not only do I have to deal with my own hurt and pain, I, I get to step up close with many of you, and as I said, I, you have to remember that the way to victim village is open and easy, but the door to the victorious life city Matter of fact, I want us to look at how we can respond by looking back at Joseph really quickly. So at the end of the story, you know, there's a famine in the land, and 10, not 11, 10 of his brothers, let's call them the expendable 10, his father sends them into Egypt, not knowing if they'll come back alive. Get food for the family. Joseph recognizes who they are. He's the second most powerful man, more than likely just in the world, the known world at that time. He is an incredibly powerful been years they don't recognize him he he toys with them some you can go back and read that it's a few chapters long but eventually he reveals himself they apologize he accepts their apology he moves his whole family to Egypt he takes care of them throughout the duration of the famine and then the end of the story in Genesis 50 uh, Jacob Jacob dies and the brothers knowing that it's their father 
who more than likely is actually keeping their heads attached to their shoulders. This is where our story picks back up. It says, when Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly, because any sane person would respond that way, repay us for all the suffering we caused him. He was a victim of our wickedness. So they sent a message to Joseph, which is quite hilarious. They said, hey, before dad died, he gave you a command. So they're hearkening back to their dead father like, well, the only hope we have is to try to point him back to dad. Dad said this, say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgressions and their sin, the suffering they caused you. So therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And says Joseph wept when their message came to him, and his brothers also came to him. They bowed down before him, and what did they say? They're so desperate, like, we're your slaves, just don't kill us. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil. It was evil. What they did to you was evil. You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, something that's really important to remember when you're reading stories like this in the Old Testament, something like Joseph, something maybe like David, the purpose is not to look at the story and say, wow, I want to be the Joseph of my story. The truth is, is that it's not quite the point. The point is, is that people like Joseph and David are pointing to a greater reality. Now, they didn't know what that was at that time, but what we now know is that Joseph was almost like a little Jesus, if you will. Because, because what did Jesus experience? Too? Well, he was betrayed, let down, lied on, wasn't sold into slavery, but he was falsely accused, thrown into prison, betrayed by his own friend, also of which there were 12 of them, a lot of overlap and symmetry there on purpose, of course. But see, where Joseph's story ends with him being this, you know, this, this great kind of king in the end that takes care of everybody, Jesus' story ends where? It ends on a cross. And, and much like Joseph, who forgives them in a place of power, Jesus says to his father as they're driving nails in his hands, what does he say? Please, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So Joseph's story is to point us to the greater story of Jesus, and then how do we, as Jesus' people, try to live out these principles that we see both in Joseph and ultimately in Jesus? Well, let's start at the beginning really quickly. You will have hurt and disappointment in your life. Deep, devastating hurt and disappointment. It is unavoidable. It's not to be scary. It's not to be pessimistic. It's being realistic. So what you need to be ready for is how you will stay on the path to victorious life city and not careen wildly to victim village. Because after hurt and disappointment, instead of it being fear and anger, instead, we as Christians, we replace it with trust and hope. We put in its place trust and hope. See, instead of 
fear and anger, we place hope in God, knowing that God's ways are good and that we can trust him. That is why you need to know scripture and be able to believe it when verses say, like Romans 8, 28, it is for the good. God works all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. Or like Paul wrote, in prison, shackled up, he was Definitely a victim, falsely accused, doing nothing wrong, and yet what did he write? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can have hope and I can trust that God is still for me even in the deepest valley. But look, there is no trust and no hope in Victim Village. You don't want to end up there. So when we start with trust and hope, we see that It is the only way through the brokenness and the chaos and the hurt and the pain of being a victim. Because I'm reminded of this really where this illustration came from. John 10, the words of Jesus. Now in this translation it says, I am the gate in the King James Version. It's translated that Jesus says, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out And find pasture. See, a thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And the enemy wants to steal from you your joy, your hope, and your purpose because he ultimately is the undercover king of Victim Village. But Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. In the end, Surrender in faith. Living not as a victim, but as victors in Christ Jesus. Because here's the thing, and this is I, the reason I feel very pressed to, to talk about this today is that I am concerned because we live in a society that finds tremendous value in being the victim. Matter of fact, I would say that in today's society, people value being a victim far more than being a victor in anything. And that is what our our children are being taught, that anybody that that has wronged you has given you now this, this right, almost like this street credibility because you have been wounded, which is crazy because the only place that ever gets us back to is an eye for an eye because that is the law of a broken world. That is the law of Victim Village. But we're not residents of Victim Village, are we? We're not those people. So we instead anticipate, we expect, Expect that we will be victim of other people hurting us and that doesn't take us away from Jesus and makes us more like him it makes us have the opportunity to be victims in Christ Jesus so yes have they wronged you was it was it absolutely their fault was it wicked was it hurtful yes but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me now I feel like Paul he sums it up far better than I can because again he is a man who knew suffering Romans 8 31 it says who I'm sorry 35 who can separate us from the love of Christ can afflictions or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword all of these things outside of our control it says no in all these things we the people of God are more than conquerors Through him who loved us. 
He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not detour. Do not take the exit. Do not choose like Max. Choose as the Father would have you choose and stay on the straight and narrow so that you may go to victorious life. And look, I am not talking about, in this metaphorical analogy, heaven. Yes, that's part of it. I'm talking about the abundant life that God offers you now. What do I mean? There is far more life in forgiveness than in anger, fear, or jealousy. Look, there is far more life in hope in the promises of God than just living on the frayed edges of despondency and brokenheartedness. You can choose to stay there, but there's no life there for you. And the enemy will only speak death into your ear, but the God beckons us to life. So which way are you headed? Victim village, victorious life city, because as victors in Christ, we can forgive after being hurt. We can use our pain to help others. Victors in Christ can trust fully again, even knowing that we may be hurt again, but it's okay. Because my trust and hope is in Jesus. I can still love and care deeply, even for those who have caused me so much pain. I can learn to keep no records of wrong because neither does my father. And I can learn to live with no fear of tomorrow because God has already been to my tomorrow and holds me there too. So I want you guys to stand with me. Is that close? Thank you so much. We are a little over on time today, but I appreciate that. I hope this speaks to a very deep place in your heart and that as we finish this series on surrender, that maybe this is the the very surrender that you've been struggling with all along and that all the other pieces will fall into place once you start onto the road to victorious life. Let's pray. King Jesus, I thank you so much for these moments, these lessons, these stories like Joseph. We thank you for the examples that you yourself, Jesus, have set before us that we are not to hold on. We're not to allow anger, bitterness, pride, jealousy, stress, fear to overwhelm us, but to be put into their proper place underneath your authority in our life. So I pray very, very desperately that you speak mightily and move mightily and heal mightily the hearts that are struggling right now in this room with forgiveness, with fear, with doubt, anger, bitterness, and hatred towards you, towards other, towards themselves. And we lay it all down at your feet, King Jesus. Say, we don't bear it anymore. It's not where we want to go. We are not victims. We are victors in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, let's conclude with singing, I Surrender All.